morning. You've been quiet this morning. That's sometimes a little scary. So I spend most of my time in the classroom, and when my students are quiet, uh, I wonder what they're thinking. So uh, hopefully you'll be with me today. I'm really excited for us to continue our series on covenant, um, but I need to let you know that in order for me to be here with you this morning, I had to sacrifice worshiping with our children. And to be honest with you, uh, uh, I'm thankful to be able to be here with you. I really am. But I really miss uh, sharing worship with my kids. They um, are kids, I guess I should say. Sorry, I take it a little personally. So uh, they worship in such a unique way that challenges me that uh, I, each week I look forward to being with them. But today I look forward to being with you, and uh, we are going to continue our series. I think one of the things I like about this series is we're, we're talking about living in covenant, and if you um, think about the kind of the passion of who we are these days, you're hearing this phrase quite often, uh, living God's story in our community. That's kind of what we've taken is who we are, right? How we're going to live out this relationship with God. And that goes so well with this theme of living in community. So it's living out our story, excuse me, living in covenant. So it's now living our story in our community as we live in covenant with God. And I think that's how these two things connect. And so as we continue our story, we've looked at covenant with Adam, we've looked at covenant with Abraham and covenant with Moses, and now today we're going to move on to another very significant covenant because we're going to see a significant change in the way covenant is done as we look at our story today. But before we get there, I want us to review uh, the three questions that are kind of driving our conversation as we uh, experience life together in our services Uh, The first is, uh, what does living in covenant look like? And so hopefully as we've been working through um, these stories, you're beginning to get a sense of kind of what living in covenant looks like. The next question is, what is this God, uh, excuse me, who is this God that invites us into a covenant relationship with him? Are you beginning to shape an answer to that question? Who is this God? What is he like? What is... What does he expect of us? What does he do in the covenant-making process? Did you notice that that question is on our sign this morning? Did you notice when you came in? Our sign out front, that question is there. The third, do the covenant stories of the Old Testament have any relevance for the world we live in today and the things we struggle with in 2018? And I hope we'll continue to uh, develop some answers to those questions as we look at our text today. But before we do that, I'd like for you to uh, use your imagination with me. Now, kids do this really, really well, so I'm going to stretch you a little bit. I'm not sure we're as good at imagining as we used to be, but but I'm going to challenge you to imagine today. As we go through our story, I want you to see it as a play that is unfolding. Perhaps you've been to the Kankakee Valley, Valley Theater or some other theater, and you can kind of picture what the room looks like, what the stage looks like, uh, different plays that you may have seen, all of the, the things that are part of that. I want you to hear our story today in the context of a play, all right? And uh, perhaps uh, as you're watching, you're going to be filling in some of the voids that are in the story. You're going to be putting in the scenery in. 
uh, as we hear the story. But one of the important things I want you to realize is as we watch this story unfold, as we watch the characters on the stage play out their roles, I want you to recognize that there's something going on behind the stage that we don't see. Uh, We're not really sure exactly what it is, but we know there's a voice speaking into what's happening on the stage that we're not really aware of. We kind of know it's there, but we're not really sure. And in this particular instance, one of the things we later discover that I'm going to give you a hint on now so you can be seeing this is that the voice from behind the stage will occasionally end up on the stage. And uh, we may not know that for sure unless we're looking at the playbill and we see it listed. But in our story today, there are times that the one behind the stage, God, who is orchestrating what is taking place, will at times make himself known on the stage, but other times we will just see his influence, his voice, his hand at work in those who we see. So let's jump in. Act 1. When the curtain opens, we see a person of insignificance, a young boy who is out taking care of his father's sheep. At this point in the story, we don't even know his name. We just know he's a kid. He's out there taking care of his dad's sheep. And as we watch, we discover that someone comes from offstage and joins him, speaks some words to him, which we're not really sure we've heard, and he leaves. And as he leaves, the scene begins to change, and we discover that he is back home. And we wonder why he's left the field and why he has come back home. But as we begin to watch this scene unfold, we see a prophet by the name of Samuel who is standing in the room waiting seemingly for this insignificant young boy to appear. He's with this boy's brothers. He's with his mom and his dad. And he seems insistent that things are not going to move forward until this boy arrives. So there he is. He's there. While he's there, the prophet Samuel realizes this is the one. And so he does what God earlier commanded him to do, which was to take some oil and to go and to bless him, to anoint him as a king. A king? Really? A boy, an insignificant boy, a boy whose, names we, whose name we don't even know, is anointed a king? Are you serious? So we watch in amazement as Samuel anoints him, and for the very first time in the story, we discover this insignificant boy's name is David. Before the scene ends, David leaves the company of his family, almost as if nothing has happened, and he goes back out to taking care of his sheep. This new king is now just out there taking care of sheep. And we're wondering, what's going to come of this? And as we watch, we discover that occasionally this young boy will leave his sheep and go to the palace 
of the king and occasionally play his harp, his lyre for him. We're not really sure what that's all about at this point in the story, but we know that's happening. We find it rather odd that this king who takes care of sheep finds himself occasionally in the king's palace. After some time, David is sent by his father to the battle lines. He has three brothers that are in the army of King Saul, and uh, dad is a little bit concerned. He's not heard from them for a while, and so he sends his youngest son, David, to the battlefield. And David shows up as this insignificant kid who has been anointed king and arrives at the battlefield and discovers things are kind of a mess. He recognizes there's this army and this giant by the name of Goliath who's challenging God's people and all of the warriors of King Saul's army are hiding because the, this giant has called them out and no one's willing to fight. So, of course, this insignificant boy steps forward and says, I will fight him. And, of course, his brothers say, Who do you think you are? And the king says, You're just a kid. So David responds with these words. The God who saved me from the paw of the lion... And the God who saved me from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And of course, we know with the help of God, he is successful and he kills the giant. And we watch and we realize there's something very interesting going on here. The more we see this insignificant boy who's been anointed king act, the more we realize he is actually acting like a king. And the more we discover and watch King Saul, who is actually king, act, we realize he's acting less and less like a king. So as we come to the end of this act, we realize that we have seen an insignificant boy whose name we didn't even know until later in the story who takes care of its father's sheep is the same boy who kills the giant Goliath. But we must remember, this story is not really about this insignificant boy. It is about a God who is always with this boy. Listen to the words this boy speaks to the giant Goliath just prior to killing him and cutting off his head. You come against me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And without having to see the story play out, we know exactly what happens. Act 2. This insignificant boy who has been anointed king, who's still taking care of his dad's sheep, is now a little bit older. He's a young man. And instead of seeing him in the fields with his sheep, we see him in Saul's palace. And not only in Saul's palace, but we have discovered as the story continues on, that he has become a mighty warrior. And because of that, he is made the commander of King Saul's army, this insignificant boy. And he's successful. So successful that one day he comes home from battle and the ladies line the streets as they would have done when the armies came home from battle. And they're singing a song. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Of course, if you're a king, you love hearing that song. And we begin to discover that David's life is in jeopardy at this point. King Saul has decided that David is a problem for him. It really seems ironic at this point in the story that the young man who has been anointed is now serving as the leader of King Saul's army and doing it successfully. And as our scene starts to change, two significant and life-changing events are about to take place. The curtain opens... And we're a bit surprised by what we see. We see Jonathan, the son of King Saul, the heir to the throne, hanging out with David. In fact, we will learn through the story that not only do they hang out together, but Jonathan loves David as he loves his own soul. What a description of intimacy that David has with Jonathan. Now, we know the backstory here, so this is an intriguing scene for us. We know about the conflicts that are about to happen here. And in the midst of that, Jonathan speaks these words. David, I am going to make a covenant with you. Really? Now, the covenants we've seen up to this point have been God and humanity. So this is a unique moment in our storyline as one person makes covenant with another. We're not really sure the content of the covenant at this point. It it seems as the play goes on, there's not much speaking of that. But we do know this. We do know that in the most important moment of the scene... Jonathan removes his robe, which is a signal of his, his royalty and his uh, ownership of the kingdom. 
takes off his coat, takes off his belt, takes his sword and his spear, and he hands them to David. We will later discover that part of that covenant includes that when David becomes king, he will not forget Jonathan's family. Isn't that interesting? As our story continues, the irony of these relationships. But things don't end there. They continue to get strange. As David is accomplishing all of these things, of course, not on his own, but with God's hand upon him, Saul's daughter takes a fancy for David. Now, you may have heard her name as Michael or Michal or Michal, however you want to say her name, she's Saul's daughter. And David begins to take a liking for her. And David decides he wants to marry King Saul's daughter. Of course, we, we know that, that King Saul sends David off on a journey to basically purchase his daughter uh, that is uh, life-threatening. But God's hand is with David through that, and David comes back and he marries King Saul's daughter. So now not only is David King Saul's commander of his army, he is now a member of King Saul's family. Isn't that interesting? King Saul continues to be very savvy, however, and at at times, as he's able, he does what he can to try to take David's life. And every time he's unsuccessful, and we know he's unsuccessful because we know God's hand is on David. And by the end of Act 2, we see King Saul on the battlefield, killed by his own sword. And as we watch the play, as the curtains close and we were sitting thinking, what's going to be next? Uh, all kinds of ideas of what possibly could be happening next in the story go through our minds. And about that time, the curtain opens. Act three. For the final act, we see that David has become king of Judah. He has become king of Israel. He has united these two lands into one. And things are very, very good. Israel is doing well. This one-time insignificant person is now king. But don't be deceived. His kingship means nothing as far as God is concerned. But in time, David is named Jerusalem the capital. He's settled into his palace. He's moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The presence of God represented in the ark, and everything is great. God has even given them rest from their enemies. Everything is good, with the exception of one thing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to first, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. 
After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Okay, folks, when you hear a verse like that, it is time to pay attention. Okay? This is what the Lord says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like the names of the great men on the earth, I will provide a palace for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of, my, of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, here we see David living in a palace. God's given him rest from his enemies. All is well in Israel. That is, until David realizes God does not have a palace to live in. Now, what David proposes is not uncommon. It would have been very common during his day that after you have won battle and you have found rest in your home, that a way to honor the God who brought you victory is to build a house for him. And so that's what David is proposing to do. I live in this beautiful palace. God lives in a tent. How can I allow that to happen? So, he wants to honor God by building him a house. And so he makes his concern known to Nathan, and Nathan says, go ahead, do whatever your mind says you should do. 
until God shows up. And we hear these words, thus says the Lord. Like I said, we pay attention at that point. God questions David's desire to build him a house. He recounts the stories of his presence with uh, the people from the days of Moses. He has never lived in a house, but lived in a tent where he could move around. Why, David, do you want to build me a house? To be honest with you, uh, it's very difficult to grasp God's concern with David building a temple. Some say that God uh, doesn't want to be confined to a permanent place. He wants the freedom to move around. Others say that the issue is David's motivation, that this is self-serving, that this is like the other kingdoms do, and God doesn't want him to do that. And even others say that God just doesn't want one, and he's going to have Solomon do it later down the road. I want to propose to you that for us to spend time there sidetracks us from the focus of this story, the intention of the story. So I want us to go there, the purpose of the story, which is found in verses 9 through 11. If you still have your Bibles open, you can follow with me there. These verses reveal the focus of the story. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. There's some important discoveries here that we need to pay attention to. The first Did you notice the language that God uses? I will make your name great. I will provide a place for my people. Does that ring a bell with you at all? Please, tell me it does. (laughs) Otherwise, because I preached the last sermon that this this comes from. Do you remember the command, the the, uh, covenant that God made with Abraham? What did he say? I will make your name great. I will be with your people. I will bless you. And I will give you a land that will be yours someday. Here, God is restoring that same covenant that he made with Abraham, now with David. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make you a people and I will give you a land. He is restoring the covenant that he made with Abraham. In fact, if we're honest and we look carefully, we will actually discover not only is he restoring that covenant, he's fulfilling that covenant. Way back when, in Abraham's day, he made a covenant with him and now we see it being fulfilled. God has given them a land, he has given them a people that are his. The second interesting discovery in this text is what happens in verse 11. Look at the last sentence of this verse. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Are you telling me God's going to build David a house? Well, not really, but kind of. So, To do a little bit of background work, 
The Hebrew word used here in this text for house is the word bayit. And bayit in Hebrew has two meanings. You've got to love these words in Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew people love playing with words. And, uh, and oftentimes the meaning of the words have nothing to do with another meaning of the word. Okay? In this case, the meaning of the word has two. House, as in a building, or dynasty, as in a family line. So God is saying to David, you want to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. David wants to do something to honor God. He wants to tell God how important he is to him. He wants to acknowledge all the things God has done for him. So he wants to build him a house. And just like God, like he always does, and this is so frustrating about God, just when you want to do something wonderful for him, he turns around and says, eh, I want to do something for you. What you do for me, eh, good, yeah, fine, yeah, okay. But I want to do something for you. And we see that here. Something grand, something you couldn't possibly believe, David, I'm going to do it. God is saying to David, I will establish my covenant with you. I will keep my unconditional covenant that I am making with you this day, not only with you, but with your family forever. Forever. There is nothing that you can do, David. There is nothing that your children can do that will disrupt this covenant. I will keep my covenant to the end. And your family will be blessed by me. It is through you that I will bless the world. Now, our theme for today is supposed to be restoration. To be honest with you, I struggled with that theme with this text. Because there's not a lot of restoring going on. It seems like it's kind of a new thing going on. And yet, sometimes when we look at a text... The theme is obvious. So last week, Pastor Gary, who did a fabulous job, really had it easy. Because when you're talking about Moses and you're talking about God having a relationship, I mean, that relationship theme is really easy, right? I mean, everything's about relationship when it comes to God. So Pastor Gary, that was easy. I mean, you did a great job, but that was easy. (laughs) To find restoration in this text takes a little bit of work, takes a little bit of digging. So here we go. We see God's restoration in two ways. First of all, God is restoring the relationship with David that is similar to a very close relationship that he had with Adam and with Abraham and with Moses. This relationship with David is for him and his family. It will continue through them. And guess what? The relationship that God chooses to have with his people has not changed. The relationship that God chooses to have with David as he's making this covenant with him is the exact same relationship God chooses to have with you and I. Second, God restores his covenant with Abraham by fulfilling the covenant and creating a new but a similar covenant with David. So what does this mean for us? 
would you be surprised to discover that the same covenant that David makes with God, or I should say that God makes with David, is the exact, exact, exact same covenant that Jesus will make with us on the cross. Exact same covenant. Conditions are exactly the same. Would it surprise you that Jesus comes from the line of David and that 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David? God keeps his covenant all the time. David's significance in this story was not found in wealth, in status, in position, in kingship. It wasn't found in any of those things. His significance in this story is found only in the fact that he is chosen by God. God chooses to enter into a covenant with him, a a covenant that is unconditional. God says, this is what I'm going to do. So the question for us then is how will we respond when God says, this is what I'm going to do and I choose you? Because he has. At the beginning of our service, we said that one of the questions that we would try to answer in our series is, who is this God that invites us into covenant with him? Have you discovered who he is yet? He is the God who takes people like David, people like you and me, who are insignificant in themselves and makes them significant. Our only response to this God has to be what David says. But before I tell you what David says, let me tell you this. Here's the good news, folks. You ready for it? Here it is. The good news. You are insignificant. Every one of us in here is insignificant. We don't matter. We come, we go, and the world moves on. We're insignificant until God moves in, until God has us, until we allow him to make covenant with us and transform our lives into something that's significant. Hear these final words of David as he responds to the covenant that God makes with him. Who am I, sovereign Lord, And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Who am I? Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless this house of your servant. That it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Amen. Those are good words. I hope they're your words. I hope you can say to God, who am I that you would choose me? But boy, am I thankful. And because of what you have done, 
how can I do anything less than serve you with everything I've got? David will blow it a lot. But at the end of the story, we hear the words, this is a man after my heart. Those words spoken by God. Are you a person after God's own heart? Will you stand with me, please? Let us pray together. Father, thankful. We are thankful people because we know, Father, without you, we are insignificant. We are just people born into this earth who will someday leave this earth. And truth be told, it won't be long before no one knows who we are. But Father, you have told us that it is your desire to enter into a relationship with us, and to enter, enter into a covenant with us that completely transforms our lives, that makes us significant. Not significant because of status or power or authority or that anyone will ever remember us after our time on this earth, but that while we are here, we are serving you with all that we have so that your name and your kingdom will be blessed. That is our desire if we are honest with you today. That is what we want. Sometimes we don't know exactly what that looks like and we don't know always how to get there. So in our struggles, will you be the God that says, remember, I, I work first, I move first, and I will be with you. We need that today. We need to know that you are with us. So affirm that in our lives as we continue to serve you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for that message.